Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. For those of you watching online, a warm welcome to you. We're glad that you're watching and participating. And um, we're starting a new series today. We're starting this book, this letter called First John. And whenever you start a new book, it's always good to do a brief overview of what's going on with this. And so one of the first questions we ask is, well, who wrote First John? It's John the Apostle. And so this is the same person who wrote the gospel called John. This is the same one who wrote second and third John after first John. And then also the same person who wrote Revelation. When did John write this letter? We think he wrote it somewhere between 60 and 100 AD. That's kind of a long period. It's likely that it was written more towards 75 to 80 AD. Uh, because there's something called Gnosticism that's being addressed in the letter. Gnosticism, uh, we're going to talk just briefly about it. It's a problem. It was a heresy in the church. It's something that was born out of uh, what we call Greek dualism. Um, in the Greek mindset of that time, the Greek and Romans, they had this dualistic approach where, you know, mind and spirit is good, but anything physical and body is bad. And so we need to be, if you will, released from the body, kind of like Eastern religions today. And so a way that it worked in the church is uh, these people crept into the church and said, you must have a secret knowledge or um, a right knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And you can do whatever you want with your body. And so there was immorality going on but as long as I have the right thoughts or truth about Jesus, I'm okay with God. And so that's precipitating why John is writing this letter to the church. And um, he's an apostle, but he's also a pastor. And he's a shepherd of the church. And he wants the church to grow in the truth of the gospel, not the lies that the Gnostics were spreading. And so he corrects the false teaching of the Gnostics. He basically says it's not what you know about God, but it's knowing God personally. And that really leads to like the main idea of the letter. It's how do you have true fellowship with God? So that you're not just knowing about God, but that you know you belong to God. And when you know that you belong to God, that you are his child, and as his child, you're living like it. You're loving as God has loved you. Now, here is John, he's writing to the church. We think it's Asia Minor, um, that area, but it's really the church today. And what we're doing is we're building off the previous sermon series that we've been doing here at Cornerstone. So if you're joining us, again, we're glad that you're joining us for the first time. This past fall, we did a sermon series, How Does a Holy God Live or Dwell Among a Sinful People? And so there we looked at the Old Testament and we saw how God in his holiness is like this nuclear reactor. Uh, it's wonderful, powerful, and yet dangerous. And how does this holy God live amongst this sinful people? And we talked about the ceremonies and the sacrifices and the temple. And they're all, if you will, a means to get close to God, but they were not enough. There needed to be an ultimate way to get to God. And then that led into our Advent series where we looked at Emmanuel, God with us. And as Clay, uh, Pastor Smith, concluded that last week, we, see, we saw that Jesus came to tear down that curtain, that curtain that divided sinful people from a holy God. Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross, tears down that barrier 
And now we have this fellowship with God. And so that comes to 1 John. We're brought near through Jesus so that we might have fellowship with God. And what we're going to get into today is this. What's the reason for the fellowship? Why is God doing this? And then the second point will be, what are the means of fellowship? How does it come about? And then the third point will be, well, what, what do we do with this fellowship? How do we enjoy it? And so our big idea today is this. Uh, because Jesus has come to restore fellowship with God, we are to enjoy him. Because Jesus has come to restore fellowship with God, let us enjoy him. Before we go further, would you pray with me? God, we pray because we need you. We pray because we love you. We pray because we want to hear from you. Would you use my words to be your very words? Would you open the ears and also open our hearts so that we might receive your word and be changed? God, we want to know what does it mean to fellowship with you? To walk with you. To know that you are our God and that we are your people. Would you do that now by the work of your spirit? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So first, the reason for fellowship, and it's a very simple question, but why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? Well, we get a, we get a clue of that, or an answer even, full out, when we consider Advent. We just have come out of the Advent season, and when we consider Advent, Advent is God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, when we look at the Advent accounts, they show how the Lord Jesus came. He was born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, he was born in a manger. He was born in the little town of Bethlehem. Uh, he was poor and lowly, and yet the angels come in glory, and they announce to the shepherds that the Messiah has been born. We read in the gospel accounts that the magi, the three wise men from the east, come and they worship the Lord Jesus. They bring their costly gifts as though he is the king of the universe, which he is. And yet the king Herod tries to destroy this Jesus. And so we look at these gospel accounts and we know how Jesus has come, kind of like history. Here in 1 John, what John is doing is he's telling us why Jesus has come. He's telling us the reason behind the history. Look at verse three. Jesus has come to restore fellowship with God. Now, as soon as that's, we say that, we need to have a pause, and the pause is this. So what is fellowship with God? Um, if you think about that, it's kind of an odd concept, and let me just illustrate. So we have, with every new sermon series, we have a new bulletin, if you're watching online, and so we have this new bulletin cover, and we do a rather kind of non-scientific way of trying to figure out what the bulletin cover is. Basically, we take the, thir the sermon theme, which is fellowship with God, or the sermon series, and then we Google it. <laughs> and then we see what other churches has done, have done uh, for pictures with it. And so when we Googled uh, the phrase uh, fellowship with God, what's interesting is uh, nearly all the pictures were of a person with upraised hands looking up at the sky, and often they had like mountains in the background. And so we jokingly said it's like touchdown mountains, you know, like the touchdown sign and looking at some starry or blue sky. And what it really was teaching is this. Uh, according to Google, pictures at least, 
Fellowship with God is like a mountaintop experience when you feel so close to God. I put before you that's really misleading though. <laughs> um, we all know that life is not like that. Life is not always, you know, this lofty grand experience with God. Life is hard and life is dark. And so we begin to think, well, maybe fellowship with God is conditional. Like it's only when you feel good about God. So we need to look at this word for fellowship. And the word in the Greek is called koinonia. Some of you heard that before. And so that word translates fellowship, but it also translates community. It also translates as intimate fellowship. Another good way to understand what this koinonia is, is we read about it in Galatians chapter 2. Here is Paul and Barnabas. Uh, they've been through the trials of ministry, and they're going to the mother church in Jerusalem, and they're meeting with the church leaders, and the church leaders are like, who are these guys, you know, announcing the gospel to all the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, and they explain what God has done, and then it says they gave him the right hand of fellowship, the right hand of koinonia. And what that's really indicating is fellowship has this meaning of camaraderie. Fellowship has a meaning of trust, like you trust each other so much that you just, you know that that person is doing something right and good. And so it also has this, you know, meaning of belonging. You're part of us. You're not on the outside. And so when we think about fellowship with God, yes, it is a mountaintop experience when you feel so close to God, but also, listen, it's the bottomed out times as well. It's those times when you're all alone. It's those times when you're despairing. It's those times when you say, all that I have is God. That's even fellowship with God. And so closeness with God, it's not always a happy time. We need to hear that. Sometimes it's resting and knowing that you're not alone, you're not forsaken, you're still very much loved. And so what we begin to see is fellowship with God has what we call an every momentness to it. Every moment of life can and should be fellowship with God. So what that means is sometimes it's going to be the really high moments, like you went to a Bible study that was just amazing and you learned something cool about God, or you went to a conference and you're on that post-conference high and you feel close to God, but also it's the every day. You had a meal and you're satisfied and you're thankful. You went to work and you're grateful that you have a job. You look at your family and they're healthy and you're just incredibly appreciative of that, but also it's even the low times when you're sick or facing death, that God is there and fellowship with God is every moment of your life. Now, fellowship with God according to John then is not just knowing about God, not just having the right secret truth, but it's knowing God as a most close friend. You think about your closest friends, your friends that you really enjoy, you enjoy those friends because in some ways they fulfill you. You enjoy those friends because they walk through the dark times with you. You enjoy those friends because, as we saw from the children's sermon, they're fun, they play games, they do good things like that. One of the things we find out, though, is consider with a friend, you just want to spend time with them. 
Like if you have a friend who's moved away across the country, you just long to be with them. And when you get together with that friend, it's like magical because your friendship has been restored through that distance. Why did Jesus come? To restore fellowship with God. That we might know him, that we might trust him, that we might enjoy him. Well, how does Jesus do that? And that's our second point, the means of fellowship. So Jesus comes to restore the fellowship with God. Now, as soon as we say that word restore, that implies that something is broken. So let us go a little bit backwards and consider what is broken. In Genesis chapter 1, there we read that God made us humans in his image. And so as image bearers, we are set apart from all other creation. Out of all the things that God created, we are the only ones who are made in his image. And listen, we are made to have fellowship with God. We are made to know him, to enjoy him, to be with him. Now you move on in Genesis chapter 2, we see Adam is put to work in the garden. He is to keep it and make it orderly. And one of the things we read there is Adam's in the garden, God is with him. God is with him in his work and they're fellowshipping together. And then in Genesis chapter 2, as it continues, God gives Adam just one negative command. Do not eat of the tree of knowing good and evil. You can eat of any tree, any plant that you want, but you are not to eat of that one tree. And what's going on is that one negative command, just one, establishes that God is God and Adam is not. God is the king and Adam is the subject. God is the one in charge. Adam is the one following. We move on to Genesis chapter 3. We see that God creates Eve to be with Adam to work this garden. And God is dwelling with Adam and Eve. We see that God walks with them in the cool in the garden. It's really kind of a neat thought if you think about that. God walking with them, enjoying them. But then we also read in Genesis chapter 3, they disobeyed God. The one thing that they were not supposed to do, what do they do? They go and they eat of that tree. The Bible calls that sin. And what sin does is sin certainly harms our relationship with God. There's no alienation. There's distrust. There's fear. There's doubt toward God. There's enmity toward God. God, I'm going to do things my way, not your way. But then also, there's just plain old dysfunction. <laughs> there's this unhealthy relationship. There's this brokenness in fellowship with God. Now, sin's ultimate devastation is this. It keeps us from our created purpose. Again, what is our created purpose? To fellowship with God, to know him, to glorify him, to enjoy him forever. And what does sin do? Sin breaks that fellowship with God. Sin separates us from God. Now in Genesis chapter 3, there God gives a promise of hope and he says there's going to be one born, the seed of the woman, who's going to crush the serpent, Satan. What God is saying is he's going to send a deliverer into this broken world and he's going to deliver us from this broken world by undoing the evil, by, if you will, conquering Satan, conquering sin, undoing the curse by paying for it. And so what the promise is, is the broken world will be restored and we will be brought back to fellowship with God. We will dwell again with God. We will walk with him. We will enjoy God as our best friend. 
and fulfill the design for which we were created. Now, that's a whole lot there, I get that. But let's come back to 1 John now. This is what 1 John is saying. John the apostle and pastor is announcing the deliverer who's going to restore fellowship with God. What was talked about in Genesis, John is talking about. He's saying, look, who is this deliverer? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. That which is from the beginning. Now that's actually, if you will, if you remember in his gospel, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. But then even then, John is referencing going back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so here is John and he's starting big and he's saying, I'm talking about not a normal person. I'm talking about in the eternal person. I'm talking about God. Look at how he continues, verse 1 which we have heard, seen with our own eyes, we have looked upon, and then very special, we've even touched him with our own hands. Look at the middle of verse two, he continues. We have seen him, we have testified to it, we proclaim it. Commentators have all agreed that this is like a courtroom deposition. When you go to the courtroom, there's a witness, and here is the star witness, and the star witness is saying, look, this is what I saw, this is what I've seen, this is what I've touched. This is real. I saw for myself this person who is both God and man, and I'm now telling you about him. This is a historical truth. And what is the main thing? Look at verse 1. At the very end, it says, concerning the word of life. Now look at how verse 2 then uh, continues. The life. And then... Uh, further on in verse 2, he calls him the eternal life. And this uh, modifier, the, is very important because it's not just saying, you know, Jesus is life. He is saying he is the life. We need to hear what John is saying. John is saying, look, Jesus has come as God. Verse 1. He is that which is from the beginning. Verse 2. He is with the Father. But then also, he's saying Jesus has come as life. And here, John the Apostle is remembering the very words of Jesus when Jesus was on earth. John 6, 48, I am the bread of life. John 10, 10, I am come to give life and give it in abundance. John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Pastor Tim Keller says it this way, other founders of religions, usually a prophet or a sage, they have this message, do these things and do them well, and that's what connects you to God. In other words, do this, and then you will, if you will, be saved. Jesus, though, is completely different. Jesus, out of all the religious leaders in the whole world, is the only one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here is Jesus, and he's not saying, look, I'm going to show you the way to the life. Jesus comes, and he says, I am the life. We just had Christmas. Christmas is wonderful. One of the things that makes Christmas so special is this. God has come. God has come, and God has come to do what we cannot do. God has come to save us from our sin, but then also God has come to restore the broken relationship with God. God has come to bring us life. 
He's come to give us life, and we see how Jesus gives us life by giving up his own life for us. Later, as we move through the series in John chapter, this letter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. That's kind of a very technical word. We don't go around using that every day, like, I propitiated some sin today. Um, but what it is, it's this technical term, meaning Jesus covers our sin. He legally pays for it. He is the one who says, there is no more payment that is due for my sin. It is completely paid in full. How does Jesus do that? By going to the cross and giving up his own life. And when he goes to the cross, he pays our debt. And so our guilt is gone and we are freed from the curse. And that gives us life. Because now the Father sees us differently when we are in Christ by faith. And so when we believe upon the Lord Jesus, it's not just a right knowledge, it's this trust in saying, Jesus, I trust that what you did on the cross is for me. And when that happens, the Father looks at us differently. The offense of our sin is removed and the broken relationship is restored. So what are the means of fellowship? Jesus, through his death and through his resurrection, he restores our fellowship with God. And this is the best news. This is the gospel. Good news. So our third point then is this. Well, how is this fellowship lived out? So if we're churched, often we hear these things, but we're like, what do we do with it? So let's slow down a little bit and talk about how do we enjoy this fellowship with God? Look at verse 4. John writes, we write these things so that your joy may be complete. What he's saying is fellowship with God is meant to be enjoyed. Walking with God, this every momentness of life is to be one of pleasure with God, saying, God, I like you, I love you, I want to be with you. Now, admittedly, fellowship with God, it kind of feels good or is joyful when things are good. We get that. And so we begin to ask, well, is fellowship with God like a marriage? You know, in marriage, sometimes there's good days and sometimes there's bad days. If you're married, there's an amen there, all right? In other words, sometimes you enjoy your spouse, but sometimes not at all. Um, I would say, again, it can feel that way, but that's not what the scriptures teach. Uh, Fellowship with God is better equated as fellowship with a true friend. Let me read these words um, from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus says this in John chapter 15. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Then hear this. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now I want to give a caution This is not encouraging us to be overly familiar with God, like God is only our friend, like he's my BFF. God is still holy. God is still the judge. God is still a consuming fire. As is said in Aslan in Chronicles of Narnia, he's not safe, but he is good. And yet, at the same time, we have to take this passage very seriously. For Jesus says, we are made friends of God when we abide in him. 
Not just a conceptual friend, I know who God is, I know what he's doing, but what Jesus is saying, he's a relational friend. Not only do you know what he's doing, but he's trusting you. He's trusting you to do what he has engaged in this kingdom building, and he's asking us to join in that. In John's day, so going back to, you know, this first century, um, Gnosticism probably seemed very attractive. Hey, have this secret knowledge. It'll make you better than other people. If you have this secret knowledge, um, you'll be arrived. You really know something good, but it falls so very short, does it not? Can you imagine knowing God but never enjoying a relationship with God? It'd be like knowing about this really good friend that's out there but never experiencing friendship. Can you imagine the disappointment of, oh, I know that there's a friend out there, but I can't really be friends with that person. In the children's sermon, I was actually talking about um, a college roommate. His name's Paul. And Paul and I really did play endless games of risk. And we dearly did have a laser because he was a physics major, and somehow he got the laser into his room. And we were able to shine it out, and it was really a lot of fun messing with people that way. Um, not encouraging that, all right? But it is, it's really important to ask, well, what makes a friend a friend? Um, you could say, well, we played games together, we went to the same school, we enjoyed sports together, we had the same hobbies, we had the same likes and dislikes, but ultimately what makes a really good friend is this, trust. Trust. That Paul, in this case, he's got my back, he stands with me, but he also falls with me. He's willing to lay down his life for me. This coming Thursday, my dear daughter Hannah, if you don't know who Hannah is, um, I have five kids, and number two is Hannah, and she's an adult with profound special needs. And so before she was born, we knew that she was going to have a lot of troubles because she suffered a massive head bleed uh, in utero, in the womb. And um, Paul, my former roommate, uh, he's a doctor. And when Hannah was going to be born, he, he flew up from Georgia. He took time off, and he spent literally a whole week with us. We're at Johns Hopkins in uh, Baltimore, and it's this coming Thursday, so it's January 13th, and it's winter, and there's like a massive snowstorm and ice storm, and he's a southern boy, and he's like trying to drive around in the city. He ended up in a car accident, and... I just wanna put before you, he laid down his life in a really practical way. We needed someone to be there with us, and he was there with us. He just sat with us, he held us, he cried with us, he was just there. That's a friend. Now, can you imagine you saying, oh, I wanna have that kind of friend, but I don't really know how to do that? Friends, that's what we often do with God. God is that ultimate friend who walks with us, sits with us, cries with us. He's in the low times and he's in the high times. And he carries us. And that's the fellowship with God that God is calling us to have. Now, someone might say, okay, I get it. I get where you're going. You're talking about having this fellowship with God. I want it, but... I just, I don't know how to 
do that? It seems so far away. You know, God is formal. God is distant. Some of us have this experience where we say, well, God is mean. (laughs) How do I grow in enjoying fellowship with God if this is my view? And I want to give you two things, practical. How do we grow our fellowship with God? One is we remember salvation and we remember the Trinity. So let's first talk about salvation. I find Christians often miss joy with our God because they forget how amazing is God's amazing grace. They forget how amazing it is. Um, Many of us, including myself, we're self-righteous and we say things like this, yes, I'm saved, but I'm really not that bad. Or I know I'm sinful, but at least I'm not as sinful as those people out there, okay? I want us to hear this quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a Welsh-English pastor um, back in the 50s and 60s, if you will. And he wrote this really important book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. And he says this, you must be made miserable before you can know true Christian joy. Let me read that again. You must be made miserable before you can know true Christian joy. Indeed, the real trouble with the miserable Christian is that he has never been, been truly made miserable because of his conviction of sin. What he's saying is this. We lack joy because we see sin in other people but not our own selves. And when we see the sin in other people, then we are those who are complainers, we're fault finders, we're gossips. He goes on and he explains, we lack joy because we fail to see that Jesus makes you his friend when you are the exact opposite. You are an enemy of God. While we were yet sinners, the Bible says, is when God came and rescued us. And so what does the gospel teach? The gospel says, I was dead, but now I'm alive. The gospel says, I am an enemy, but now I'm a friend. Friends, that is the best news. And when we start to focus on what salvation is, it changes us. We begin to have a joy that overflows, and we say things, God, you must really love me, even though I'm unlovable. And so part of salvation and seeing the power of salvation is we need to see God didn't save us because we're good or we're likable, or we're friendly. He saved us when we are pitiful, wretched enemies. The joy is God had loved me so much to take my sin and restore fellowship. Now another practical way to grow in understanding our fellowship with God is also then the Trinity. What is the Trinity? That's a hard question, isn't it? Uh, God, forever three persons, and yet one God, always enjoying himself for all eternity. I love that picture. God is never tired with himself. He's never irritated with himself. He doesn't have to go hide in the basement or go outside and chop some wood because he can't stand himself. (laughs) He's always loving himself. And friends, this is what Christianity is. He invites us into that love. He invites us to enjoy the love that he has amongst himself. And he says, I want to share that love with you. That's why I've created, so that you might know this love, that you might glorify me, but also enjoy me. You ever, okay, this is kind of honest time. It's been holidays. So um, when you do visits during the holidays, there's sometimes there's people you really like to visit, and then there's people you don't. I'm just calling it out, okay? 
why, let's start with the negative. Why don't you like visiting some people? Because they're fighting, they're angry, it's just kind of a toxic environment. You go into that house and you know, okay, I'm gonna count down the hours that I need to be there, kind of pay my family time, but I can't wait to get out because it's bringing me down. It's bringing me down, okay? We're just talking honestly here, okay? All right? But then on the positive side, sometimes there's people you visit, whether it's friends or family, and the environment is so loving. You look at the family and there's just such an incredible bond. When you are in that environment, what do you find? You don't want to leave. You want to stay there. You want it to rub off on you. You want to drink of it more and more and more. That's the Trinity. God is saying, come, enjoy this fellowship that I have with myself, and I share this with you. Now, how do we do that? We do it through common things, what we call the means of grace, the Word of God, prayer, sacraments, worship, fellowship here as a church as what we're doing online. <laughs> and what we begin to see is fellowship is work because it means that we must make time to listen to God, to engage with God, to respond to God, to love God. Again, I want to give just a real clear word to you. If you're not in the Word of God as part of your daily fellowship, as we start 2022, would you start, be in the Word of God, on our website, go to resources. There's Bible reading plans. Go there. Multiple plans that you can choose. But just being in the Word of God grows your fellowship and enjoyment of the Trinity. I think it's so amazing that God wants to fellowship with us. Who are we? What are we? But here is God, and he wants us to be close to him. Sometimes we say, you know, I get that, but I've been burned by my family. I've been burned by my friends. How do I know that Jesus is going to stick with me? He bore the cross for you. If Jesus is going to lay down his life and go to that length to be your friend, he will never, ever let you go. Jesus has come to restore fellowship with God. Let us now enjoy him in every moment of our lives. Would you pray with me? God, there's that proverb that says, a man of many com companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. <laughs> Jesus, thank you for going to the cross to bring us close, for being the one who sticks close to us in every moment of life. Thank you for the privilege of being our friend and our brother. Help us to enjoy you. Help us to see the great salvation that you have wrought and brought and bought on our behalf. Jesus, help us to love the love that is in the Trinity. So by your Spirit, Holy Spirit, help us to grow in seeing the amazingness of amazing grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.